Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Daryl, would you come up and teach us? Thank you, Jim. I am Daryl Anderson. I'm one of the overseers here at Lakeview, and it's a privilege to speak with you this morning about a very important passage that we find in 1 Peter. Before we get into the passage, so um, there's a phrase that I'm sure all of you have heard one time or another. It goes like this, once upon a time. Once upon a time. Um, when that phrase comes to my mind, the first thing I think of is this poor girl who lives with her wicked stepmother and her two wicked stepsisters, and she's called to do everything all the time in the house. Until one day, there's a ball, and she finds out that she gets to the ball, and you know the story, she marries the prince and you know the rest of the story. And there's another story that comes to mind too. This story has a once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. It's this dirt farmer, if you don't know the story, and if you don't know the story, I don't know where you've been in the last 50 years, but it's a dirt farmer, young guy who dreams of being something else until he finds out he's a Jedi Knight and can save the rebellion against the evil empire. We like that story. Another story is the school nerd. Some of you maybe were the school nerd and, you know, picked on by the kids. One day he gets bit by a spider and he becomes Spider-Man. And Spider-Man can go out and right the wrongs of society and bring justice to the front. And one last one that comes to my mind that I actually like the best, it's about four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy get sent from London, from their parents to their uncle's house to be protected during the war. And they're living with this uncle. They don't see him very much. But there is a wardrobe that they find and they go through the wardrobe and I think you know the story, what happens. They go through the wardrobe, they find themselves in Narnia and not only do they find themselves in Narnia, they are royalty. And they are there to protect and really release Narnia from the grasp of the wicked white witch and they meet Aslan, and you know the rest of the story. <laughs> All of these stories captivate our imagination. I mean, young to very old, these stories captivate our imagination. I ask myself, why does that happen? Why do they captivate our imagination? And I've come up with a couple of things in my own mind. You might agree or disagree, but a couple of things in my own mind. And, and first, as... We long to be something more than we are. 
sort of the mundane or whatever that would be. We, we long to be more, to be what we, what we know we could be or should be. That's one reason. Another reason is maybe we actually long to save others. I mean, what father, mother doesn't long to save their children in one way or another if you had the power to do that or the ability? And we all sort of long to do that, to be able to be in a position where we have the ability to save and help others. And maybe the fourth reason is this, is we live in a world with a lot of chaos and struggles, and we just long to live in a world that is happily ever after. Our passage this morning in Peter uh, really brings that out. And I'll say that we, as ones created in God's image and created for glory, we know there's something more for us. And that's what we find in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12. And I want to look just at, well, actually, I'm going to have a, a screen go up. Now, everybody can read that because that's the passage we're looking at today. I don't hear a lot of responses. So I'm going to assume you can't read it, and that's fine. Because this is a passage we're looking at today written by Peter and actually written 2,000 years ago. Peter wrote this in roughly 67 AD. 67, that's about 30 years after Jesus walked on the earth. Peter was writing this letter to us. Now, there's a couple of things about this letter. Not only was it written a couple of thousand years ago, it was written to a culture that was quite different than ours. And I think most of you know it was written in Greek, wasn't written in English. And a couple of other things you might not know. Uh, in Greek, if you're looking at the Greek text, there is actually, there's no punctuation, no, you know, exclamation points, uh, nothing is highlighted, nothing is blacked out, etc., etc. It's just a list of letters and letters and letters like that. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is when Peter was writing First Peter, he didn't get to this section and say, okay, now chapter 2, verse 1, and then start writing. There was no chapters and no verses. In fact, chapters and verses were inserted in the Bible a thousand years after Peter wrote this letter. So how did Peter and the writers of the New Testament really emphasize what they wanted to say and really show you this is really important stuff that I'm writing? And this is how they did it. Now, I, I've highlighted it. Peter didn't highlight it in purple and green, etc. I've highlighted it just to illustrate what it is. When they wanted it, when Peter wanted to say something is really important, the first thing he did was he made a comment about how we should live. You know, we should live decent, non in uh, hypocrisy, can't say the word, hypocrisy, or envy or slander. Those things shouldn't be a part of us. And then he says what we should be, and we'll go into that passage in just a minute, and, and tells us how, how, who we are in Christ. We're a royal priesthood, and we're a part of the building that God is the center of for that, and he'll, he'll mention that. And then he goes into a section that's in yellow that actually backs up what he's saying by Old Testament passages. And that's really important in the New Testament is to back everything up 
by the Old Testament because that is the Word of God. Now, I know a lot of us say, I've tried to read the Old Testament before, but it's pretty hard and pretty difficult to understand. But let me tell you, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you really miss out on a lot of the flavor and the texture of the New Testament. It would be like looking at a painting that only had stick figures or people talking to each other. You don't have the background of the mountains, the, the, the ray of sunshine or the dark clouds. That's what the Old Testament does for, in a sense, the New Testament. But for the writers of the New Testament, when they quoted Old Testament, they said, not only is this important, this is the very word of God. So then Peter says, gives that back up, and then he goes to what I've outlined in purple again, because... He says sort of the same thing he said before. And when somebody in the New Testament says something twice in this way, they're saying, this is really important. You have to get this message. And so let's uh, look at that thing that's really important. Uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, as you come to him, and that him is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, and that was just quoted in the Old Testament. Um, In the sight of God, you were chosen, and he was chosen, present. you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house. So first we have us as living stones being built up in a spiritual house, which, by the way, was a temple. We'll, We'll note that a little bit later. Be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not familiar with the whole Old Testament, you will know when he says and calls us a holy priesthood, that is radical. I mean, that is really something that it's hard to understand. We now, we might be think of a priest, you know, you wear a collar or lecture, whatever it is, you know, this is his priest. Back then, it was much more. And to be called a holy priesthood is an incredible thing. Now, to illustrate that a little bit more, I'm going to look at a few um, passages that have to do with what we see in the Old Testament. Um, And we're going to have to go back a, a, a couple of thousand years to do that. So bear with me because we're going to walk through about two, three, four thousand years of history here. Uh, The first time we see a priest in the Old Testament is a priest that's called Melchizedek. You see his name up there? I love that name, Melchizedek. Um, I wouldn't name my kid that, but I, I, I like that as a name, Melchizedek. And he meets up with Abraham, or I should say Abraham meets up with Melchizedek. Now, When they meet together, Abraham had just come off a big battle, and he won that battle, and he wanted to honor God for God allowing him to win that battle. And so he was right near a city called Salem, which Salem is actually Jerusalem, will become and be called Jerusalem, the same Jerusalem that exists today over in Israel. So anyway... Melchizedek, who is the priest king of Salem, comes down to Abraham, and a priest represents God to man, and also the priest represents man to God. He's the intermediary, and that's really critical. So Melchizedek comes down, and Abraham's 
gives him 10% of all he owns and asks Melchizedek to bless him, and Melchizedek does. Now, we know that Melchizedek was a, a priest of God because he says, I'm the priest of the Most High God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. Same God. So that's the first time we see a priest in that. And then next, we're going to actually jump another 500 years um, to Moses and Aaron. Now, if we jump 500 years, you know, we have Abraham, who has Isaac and Esau, and then they have Jacob, and Jacob is the one that um, has Joseph. And that's the time where um, that family, there's a famine in the, in, the, in the land, and all of the Israelite people move into Egypt. And they move into Egypt um, because they, they need to eat. Now, the, you know the story. Talk about a rags to riches story. Joseph, who brings them in there, Joseph is the one that starts in Egypt as a slave and then as a prisoner. And a number of years later, he's the second in command of all of Egypt. So it's an amazing story. Anyway, when it's time to leave, 500 years ago, when it's time to, 500 years later, when it's time to leave Egypt, Moses leads his people out of the Egypt, and you know the story, I hope, the plagues that happened. And Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and then God says, now I'm going to create a people in you, Moses, and I'm also going to create a priesthood that will represent me to the people, and people can be represented to me through the priesthood. And Aaron is called to be the high priest at that time and to be the key uh, liaison there. Now, at that time, they built a temple made of, of cloth. Uh, it was really a tent meeting, and we have a picture of that. So when Aaron becomes a priest, they build a temple, and that temple is very specific. And you say, well, is that accurate? Is that picture accurate to what, what it really was? It's very accurate to what it was because if you read Exodus, the details of how to build that thing are, are given right down to the, the nuance of what goes where and every piece and what's there. So that's really an accurate picture. And the reason the temple was built is because God wanted to have a home for him where he would be represented and also a place to sacrifice animals for the blood of the lamb to cover the sins of the people. And so the, the tent was, was this construction. And in that tent was a place called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies could only be entered one time a year by the high priest. And so one time a year, the term that they use is Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. It's still the same term today. One time a year, the priest would sacrifice the Lamb of God and a few other things that happened, and the priest would be able to go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the altar in order to bring remission of sins, uh, the, the cleansing of sins for the people of Israel. Now, he had to go into a special place. There was a special curtain in front of the area, that, that in the Holy of Holies, and the, the, before the priest went in, they would tie a rope onto his ankle. They would, tie, they would put a bell on his ankle. And if he went in 
and they stopped hearing the bell ring, they know that he probably was not right before God, was dead, and that's what they used the rope to pull him out of the Holy of Holies. Now, we're going to jump 500 years again. Now the people are in the promised land, the, the land of Israel. And we jump a 1,000 years, a 1,000 years before Christ to the time of King David and Solomon. And David, of course, you know, has built this incredible kingdom, all sorts of wars, rumors of wars that happen. And so then David builds, uh, wants to build a temple, a real temple, not a tent temple, a real temple that God and God says, well, you can't, but Solomon can because he's your son. So then they build a temple, and we have a model of the temple today here, and that's the temple they built, and this temple was twice the size of the tent of meeting, twice the size, everything else, detail was the same, it was just twice the size, and it was made out of stone. So, and the same rituals took place at that time. Now, that temple was built, and the people went astray, and not more than 100 years later, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came down and wiped out most of the temple, just, just didn't destroy the temple completely, but ransacked it and everything else. So then the Israelites didn't have a temple to worship in. But a, number of, a few years after that, they went back and they started rebuilding it. But the temple at the time of Christ was built by King Herod in 20 BC. What King Herod did is he went in and he rebuilt the old temple. He took 10,000 slaves and 1,000 priests and about 50 years to build this beautiful temple that the time of Christ Jesus would have seen when he was taken up as a baby and then different times of the year when Jesus would come to Jerusalem. I think we have a We've had a picture of that. Yeah, we do have a picture of that. That's the temple that King Herod built. Now, that, yeah, by the way, that's a, a replica of the city of, of Jerusalem at the time of Christ, uh, an exact model of it. But that's the temple that we see there. Now, why do I say all that? What's important about that? Well, in that temple, just like uh, the other two temples, we talked about the Holy of Holies, and what separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, besides the walls around it, was uh, an incredible curtain um, that was 30 feet by 30 feet tall, wide, and long, was this incredible temple. It was something like four inches thick. It had gold strands going through it, incredibly heavy, and put up to make sure that nobody could see in the Holy of Holies and once a year, when the high priest went in, he had to go through and around and get through this temple. Now, that was critically important because it showed the holiness of God being totally separate. What's even more important is what we read in Matthew 27, 51, where when Jesus was crucified on the cross, when he died, a number of things happened. And one critical thing that happened for us, as it says, the curtain temple was torn in two. That massive, incredible curtain was torn in two, and the people outside there could, for the first time in 1,500 years, in a sense, see right into the Holy of Holies. And what was happening there, 
is Jesus was showing us that we now walk into the holy and holy and no longer need a priesthood that separates us, that we as his children can go right into the very presence of God. Um, I want to look at 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. We have that up there. This is jumping down. This is repeating what happened before, but it's critical. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. You, brothers and sisters, are a holy priesthood. Look around. Does that resonate with you? I, <laughs> I had a, a poem that always sticks in my mind. When I think of looking around, seeing the holy priesthood or seeing the saints around us, it goes something like this. It says, um, when I look above, when I, think, when I think above of the saints I love, I want, now it's coming, but when I look above the saints I love, won't that be glory? But I, when I look below the saints I know, that's a whole different story. And I, <laughs> that's the reality. Where we live right now, we are saints. We are a royal priesthood. We're called to live like that. And Peter talks about that in Peter 2, 12. I want to run to that passage, the royal priesthood that we are. Because this, we are, um, I'm sorry, I, I skipped the page. We are a royal priesthood, and what does that mean to us as a priesthood? I mean, practically, what does it mean to be a royal priesthood uh, uh, and to live in the presence of God? And there's a few points here. I said we have direct entrance into the presence of God, bringing to him our spiritual sacrifices and worship. That's what we do on Sunday morning and other times. We go into the presence of God and, Number two, we are the community of chosen people to support, serve, and encourage one another. We are the priesthood to one another. Now, this is an amazing, amazing thing that we have. We no longer, and our church, this church is structured in that way. We don't have priests. Pastors aren't priests. Oversight seers are not priests because the priesthood is gone and replaced by us. That's why, in a sense, we have congregational meetings when we get together. When we get together Sunday morning, we are the priesthood. Pastor Andy would never say he's a priest. He would never say he's an intermediary between you and God or between God and man. You have that privilege of going before that. And when we gather together, we are the royal priesthood, the community of God. And so we have that privilege. That's why we vote. We call our own pastors because we as a priesthood have that responsibility for God. And number three here, we are a community of priests who represent God to men and women. We are now the priesthood that represent those who don't know Christ to men and women outside of the church. I want to go to our last verse, 1 Peter 2, 12. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable 
so that when, you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. I was trying to think of an illustration maybe that sort of would put life to this passage. And um, I thought of a football game, actually. I thought of a football game that would be viewed by millions of people around the country. And, and for the sake of illustration, let's call one team the Chiefs, and we'll call the other team the Eagles. You have to have names for these teams. And so they're going to play together in front of the whole world. But something happens. Um, a prophet comes to the Eagles, and he says, you're going to win. You're going to win this game. They said, great. He said, that's the good news. The bad news is it's going to be a tough game because the Chiefs don't play fair. You know, face mask, holding, blocking, spearing. They just don't play fair. But you are going to play fair. You're going to play according to the rules. You're going to show honor and courage and respect. And despite the fact that you might get hurt, and beat up, you're going to win. In fact, some people might get hurt and have to go to the bench. Now, here's the kicker of the story. So I had this illustration all lined up, and I was going over my message with my wife, Carol, and, I, and she, when I got to that part, she said, you can't say people go to the bench. I said, well, yeah, people, you know. They, she said, no, 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 no. That's not right. She said, when I used to play sports, I sat on the bench all the time, and I was upset. She said, if you're playing on Team Jesus, you're in the game all the time. You have a position, and you're in action. No, nobody sits on the bench on King Jesus' team. So I said, good point. I'll remember that. Good husband, yeah. <laughs> and then... I thought about it, and we talked, and I said, you know, it's a really good point because really we all have a position to play, and that's what Christ calls us to do in the new temple, the new priesthood. And I thought, you know, when I, in high school, I played football, and I talked to other guys sometimes who play football, and they go, oh, what position did you play? I said, well, I played defensive end and a few other things, but I, I like defensive end the best. And so they said, oh, okay, well, that, that's great. And it made me think, I thought, you know, sometimes I say I go to Lakeview Church and a Christian part, and nobody asks me, what position do you play in that church? What's your responsibility in that church? If you're the priesthood of believers and you're on Team Jesus, you all have a position to play and a responsibility to play. As tough as it is, we do. Now, I'd like to close with one, looking at one other passage here that I think is important. The good news. See your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's not unusual throughout the New Testament to hear about the day of visitation, the day Jesus returns, the last day. And what I like to think of that is that is the equivalent to happily ever after, actually. We do have 
a happily ever after coming when Jesus comes back. We're in the middle of the fight right now. We have to remember who we are as God's priests and God's priests to the world outside of us. We're going to get beat up. We're going to get knocked over. But we are going to live happily ever after when our Lord returns. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your goodness to us. Father, we're grateful for the amazing history that you've brought us through, the royal priesthood that we see, the, the awesomeness of your presence that for 1,500 years people lived outside of that and by the gift of your son, his sacrifice for us, we can walk into your presence that we can be your royal priesthood, that we can represent you to the world around us. And Father, we look forward to your day of visitation when we will, Father, live with you in your glory and happily ever after. Father, we know that's not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who you are and what you have done for us. So we thank you for that. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Enjoy your day and enjoy the football game if you watch it.